Time to say goodbye. Um, it is the 18th of August. Uh, we have a special episode. This is the type of interview show that we like to do midweek sometimes. Uh, it is me talking to Viet Tan Nguyen. Um, and we talk about a lot of things. And uh, I think that before we start the audio, I want to first say that uh, this is was over a Zoom call, so it's a little bit difficult to it's not like the same, like kind of unevenly bad quality that we usually have. It's actually just uniformly not great quality. It's it's like listening to a Zoom call. I'm sure you've listened to podcasts that were through Zoom calls at this point. But um, we kind of got straight into a conversation. And I, in retrospect, I think it's necessary for us to go back and define some of the terms that we talk about. So uh, what we talk about is the AAPA, we talk about the Third World Liberation Front, we talk about ethnic studies, and we talk about this moment that happened in the late 60s and the early 70s. It started at San Francisco State University um, and moved to Berkeley and then moved, you know, very slowly and not as much as maybe like, you know, not not like wildfire across the country to, to different universities, but with some spread to different universities, especially here in California. Um, and uh, the, the history of it is, is that in the late 60s, I think, or maybe it's like 1970, 1971, um, there were some kids at Cal uh, who were trying to get involved in student organizing, and they had tried to go into the peace, you know, the peace movement, and they found that it was dominated by white men. Uh, they tried to join the Panthers, who were nearby in Oakland, and the Panthers told some of them, hey, you guys should start your own thing. And so they got together at this house on Hearst Street um, in Berkeley, California, and they came up famously with the term Asian American there. And they said that Asian American is a political term. That is the history of it. Um, that's when the term was first coined. I don't know if it was ever used before, but if it, you know, the modern uses that we, we know is started there. Um, from that, they started this thing called the AAPA, which is the Asian American Political Alliance. And um, you know, there are chapters that started in the next few years in different universities. That came right on the heels of something that was happening, like I said, at SF State, which was the Third World Liberation Front and the, uh, and the boycotts that they were doing. Um, that was around the idea where black students, Chicano students, Asian students, and a lot of Filipino students who at that point, you know, like had a somewhat, as they still do, I think, had a, uh, you know, like somewhat arm's length <laughs> agreement or arm's length type of unity with other East Asian, with East Asian students, or maybe none at all. You know, I think there are some people who have retold that story and said, like, look, we, we didn't really fuck with each other. But um, it was this idea that there would be a coalition of everybody who had sort of been raised or had come through or suffered from American imperialism, and that they would band together and their goal was to uh, create an ethnic studies program. Now, something that Viet and I get into quite a bit is like, you know, it's not the most radical <laughs> um, uh, demand, you know. It's not like Medicare for all even. It's just sort of like, well, our university should have an ethnic studies program. But I think that there is a other way of looking at all of this where um, you can say that it's, uh, you know, there, there were real stakes for them. And the way that they wanted to create these colleges for students was not necessarily like another class or something like that. It was actually to create a separate school within the school. So at Cal, they would say that the 
that third world students and the ethnic students should have the ability to even be like their own admissions program and let in the students that they want to let in. They should be able to the ones that vet their own professors. And so it was this idea of a different school within a school. So now, you know, you can gauge whether or not that's an actual radical demand or if a radical demand matters or, you know, what does it really mean for a bunch of kids at Cal who are second and third generation um, uh, Chinese and Japanese American to try and create something like this. Uh, and, you know, like there's a lot of ways to look at it. I am, you know, I actually am somewhat on the fence about all this, which is why I thought that the conversation with Viet was really interesting because, uh, you know, like we talked out a lot of interesting things about, about all of this. So, um, yeah, I think that's enough of a prologue here for you to be up to speed. And here is our interview with uh, Viet Tan Nguyen. Yeah, let's just get right into it because you have about an hour and I think that we have a lot that we want to talk about. So how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Nice seeing you here for the first time after having read some of your stuff over the years. Um, are you in L.A.? Yeah, well, Pasadena officially, but on the very border of L.A., so I still claim L.A. Uh, I lived in Eagle Rock for a while. And I'm I not far from there. <laughs> drive to South Pasadena to eat tacos like once every once in a while. Um, all right. Well, let's. Uh, I, I wanted to talk to you about one thing in particular because it's something that um, I am very curious about, and I know that it's something that you have a lot of experience about, which is this idea of ethnic studies, right? Which is something that you studied, I believe, at Cal. Is that right? Yeah, I was an undergraduate major in ethnic studies as well as English. Uh, when was that? 90 to 92, because I transferred in from UCLA, and then I stayed on to do my PhD in English um, from 92 to 97, but it was basically half ethnic studies. That was half my committee. Um, who were, who, like, what was that like? What was it, what was the ethnic studies program at Cal like and when you were there? I mean, it was transformative for me. I started taking ethnic studies when I was a freshman at UC Riverside, Chicano studies, and then when I got to Berkeley, started taking Asian American studies. My first class there was with Ron Takaki, his introduction to Asian American studies and his book, Strangers from a Different Shore, had just come out. So we read that book and, you know, I took that class and I, I guess I was just completely ignorant about Asian American history because that class just hit me like lightning, you know, to, to learn all these things about what had happened to Asian Americans. And it was an amazing experience because Ron Takaki was a great lecturer. There was four or 500 students in that class. And many of us became very politicized. And uh, through that class and my involvement with the Asian American Political Alliance, which a group of undergraduates had restarted um, from its 1960s origins, that was my my radicalization um, as, as a person, but also that was completely tied up with becoming an Asian American. And then after that, I, I declared an ethnic studies major instead of Asian American studies because I took seriously this idea that, you know, it wasn't enough just to be an Asian American. Um, it was important to think about our relationship to other minority populations in this country. I wanted to learn more um, about African Americans, for example. So I took a lot of classes that dealt with both uh, uh, inter-ethnic solidarity and history, as we called it back then, but also specifically Asian American and African American studies, too. What, what was the like? What were the conversations like around Asian American studies when you were there? Just because I know that right now, if you went right, like there would be a lot of talk. I think about interactions with blackness and you know, like perhaps ways in which people can discuss the protests going on right now. Which I imagine, since death of Michael Brown, two thousand 
uh, 14 that that's been a large topic of conversation. In the late 60s, it was about Black Panthers, it was about solidarity with third world groups. What was it like when you were there in the, you know, in the, in the early 90s? Uh, at that time, uh, you know, we were being taught by the generation of Asian American activists that had been at Berkeley or the Bay Area in the 1960s. So literally the people who had started, you know, the ethnic studies movement and were participants in the third world strike at Berkeley were now professors at, uh, at Berkeley. And so, you know, we, we felt that we had a direct conduit to the 1960s. And in fact, one of, our, one of my professors, Lin Chi Wang, said, in, you know, around 1990, 91, when the Gulf War was happening, this is it. The 60s are going to come back again. And we're like, yes, we're ready. <laughs> we're striking and all that. And of course, that wasn't the case. But um, I think, you know, we were working off of very much this model of the Third World Liberation Front of the 1960s. That was why a lot of the Asian American activists were, number one, not just doing Asian American work. You know, they, they, they saw themselves as being more than only Chinese or Japanese or Vietnamese Americans. But as Asian Americans, we also thought that it was crucial to work in solidarity. So that was just a given. My introduction to politics on the campus in 1990 was number one, around Asian American issues, like we were concerned about, you know, anti-Asian discrimination. Uh, we were concerned about, uh, you know, Asian American faculty not getting tenure. We were concerned about what, what an Asian American was. So there was a lot of tension at that time, actually, around, you know, uh, the, the place of Pacific Islanders and of Filipinos in this Asian American coalition. And even back then, you know, Filipino students, they were like, well, we're not Asian American, or why are we included here? Maybe we're more brown than yellow and so yeah. on. Outside of that, you know, the Asian American activists were deeply involved in these, these coalitional politics. So we had CalServe, that was our our progressive political party that brought together all the different ethnic or racial interest groups on campus. I mean, it was very much modeled on, you know, having Asian Americans, the Black Student Union, uh, Mecha, Native American students. That was that was this, uh, this that was the coalitional politics, and we were involved in, you know, the well in organizing a, a major diversity strike for all these issues around access and affirmative action and tenure, um, supposedly the largest strike on the campus since the Third World Liberation Front. So we were already pretty aware of all those issues and the campus had just emerged in 1990 from the divestment struggle uh, against apartheid in South Africa. Yeah. So I don't remember that there were these, the, the issues then were not quite the same as they, they are now, because there wasn't quite as much urgency on the campus at any rate to talk, you know, to primarily foreground black struggle and, uh, you know, tensions possibly between black and Asian populations. But didn't say the, what, the, the, that doesn't mean that those issues didn't exist. It just wasn't at, quite at the foreground as they are now. But I mean, did you, did it work? Like, was there a, because it's very interesting that you're coming out of like the South Africa apartheid, anti-apartheid investment struggle because that you know when as somebody who's looked a lot at american campus protests like for me like that's an interesting moment because it is a time when at campuses around the country you do have this sort of coalitional politics right the whole idea was a coalition politics and that because it felt a little bit abstract i think to people because it wasn't in the united states but because the demand was so concrete right you this university that i give money to should stop giving money to these corporations or this country um that it was, a, you know, there was access to that type of, you know, we'll all do this together because, you know, it is a little bit one remove away. There wasn't the same sort of ranking or hierarchy of identities within that struggle, even though obviously there was some of that. Um, 
did it work? Like, did, were you able to build coalitions? Because I think that's like the, you know, that's really what I wanted to talk to you about in terms of this, which is just like, is there, is there a path forward for these types of coalitions to exist, not just on campuses, but, you know, outside of there? I, I think so, but you know, you should obviously ask the students of other populations yeah. at that time whether they, they agreed. <laughs> uh, but just from my experience, you know, again, looking at the ways by which these young students, you know, in their late teens, early 20s were organizing themselves, there was definitely a commitment to your individual population, but also to this larger coalition, because there was a recognition that if you were going to do something, like try to shut the campus down for a diversity strike, you had to have a a coalition. It just couldn't be, yeah. at that time anyway, the Black students organizing it, even though there were major Black leaders at the undergraduate level. Um, and there was a sense that we were all in it together. Uh, there was this really, you know, this positive sense, again, of interethnic cross-racial solidarity, and it, I think, was being fostered by our professors and by the ethnic studies classes that we were taking. Um, and the major sort of political things that were taking place on campus again around trying to elect students of color to student government and and you know trying to uh, do things like ensure that there would be a diversity requirement for all students and that there needed to be increased representation of faculty of color on the campus. These are all things that we recognize that we needed to do together. Um, that being said, you know I, I think that there was certainly uh, an incentive for uh, this individual group work to take place. And I think there was, uh, even at that time, a sense that Black students, Black studies um, had different sets of priorities for very good reasons. So for example, we had an ethnic studies major and department on the campus, but we also had a separate African-American studies major on the campus as well. And that just reflected, I think, partly whatever was going on among the faculty, but also obviously an urgency, this idea that uh, African-American studies did need to be foregrounded on its own. Like how, how much was the was the sort of specter, and I don't I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, right? But how much was the legacy? I guess is another word is, of Third World Liberation Front at the forefront of the organizing that you did back then. I think for us it was it was um, mostly a positive thing. You know, we felt that we were pretty close to history. Uh, you have to understand that when you're 19 years old and you're 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 thinking about something that happened 21 years before, that's like ancient history, but in, a, in yeah. an absolute sense, it wasn't really. And But we don't feel very close to it because we had this conduit with the professors, but also, you know, a lot of people took seriously this, this idea that what the Third World Liberation Front and subsequent uh, movements, uh, for example, the ones involving Asian American labor movements, the iHotel, uh, you know, even, you know, very radical left wing, supposedly very radical left wing Asian American movements, all these things were present um, on the campus as well. So there was, a, there was a very clear sense of political genealogy and inspiration and that, you know, people were modeling themselves after this romantic moment of the late 1960s and that we needed to foreground the Third World Liberation Front because obviously the whitewashing of 1960s history was already taking place. Um, the tensions, I think, resulted from the fact that one of the most concrete results of the Third World Liberation Front at, at San Francisco State and at UC Berkeley was the creation of ethnic studies on these two campuses, yeah. uh, which were both very successful. And already by the by the 19, by 1990, when I got there, there was already the sense: well, is this the most important thing that ethnic that that the Third World Liberation Front did? Um, have, has has it has its have its energies been? domesticated into the campus and into academic life. Uh, that, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, from I, I 
went, I live in Berkeley now and I spent quite a bit of time in the ethnic studies library before all this, uh, you know, coronavirus started. And that was a question that I had, which I had a hard time figuring out just from the archives, which is that if you read the rhetoric around um, and some of the documents around Third World Liberation Front, right, like in, it does feel like so much of it was focused on ethnic studies and changing the admissions process at Cal. And I think that if you show that to people now, you know, kids now who are talking about defunding police or abolition of police, abolition of prisons, um, that it might feel small to them. Like, did it feel small to you in, in 1990? It didn't feel small, but I think that we, it didn't feel small to us because that was our political struggle. But certainly, again, this is where this whole idea of the legacy of the 60s overhang, overshadowing this time period was critical because what were they doing? You know, they were they were protesting against the Vietnam War. They were organizing with the Black Panthers. They were, you know, struggling against anti, you know, against imperialism and so on. And uh, so it was inevitable that a campus diversity struggle would seem le- slightly less important. Uh, that's why when the Gulf War happened, it was a big deal, you know, yeah. because my friends and I, we were, uh, you know, ripe for the draft. We really were worried that this could be could be something terrible, not just for Iraqis, but for, for us as well. Um, and I think that there were complexities happening that I didn't fully understand at that time. Because one of the accusations you can make against groups like the Asian American Political Alliance is that they and and you know the domestication of ethnic studies is that they became kind of bourgeois, that they became institutionalized, um, and that they were advocating for things like you know if you're advocating for tenure, for example, that's that's quite removed from the community. And the idea of the community in quotation marks was a big thing for us as campus activists. We felt very guilty that we were not in the community. What should we do? You know, is it really radical to be an academic? Should we go out there and, <laughs> and join the community struggles, whatever that was? And, you know, if you if there were all these like factions and tendencies and nuances I didn't fully grasp, grasp you know, like there were activists on campus who had a much more Maoist legacy, um, who, were, who were engaged in, in a different set of political uh, ambitions. And unfortunately, I didn't understand that at the time. I just saw that as a rivalry between Asian American Political Alliance and Asian Student Union. And, and you know, I was being told by, by people that, oh, the Asian Student Union are a bunch of communists and so on, as if that was a bad thing. You know, but that was the time. That was, that, that's bad. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's bad and, and they're covert and they're clandestine. And, and so there's a, there a sort of anti-communist, anti-Marxist uh, element to some of us doing Asian American activist work. And that was partly because of where we came from, you know, whether it was Vietnam or Taiwan, for example. So, and th- th- those are things I was barely comprehending at the time. But I, so that question about like where the work exists and where you're going to, is, is it bourgeois to just like say, hey, what, we, what we're fighting for is one professor's tenure, which, you know, again, feels, how, how did you end up resolving that? Because I think that is that, you know, when I see that, it, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but when I see students now, young Asian students, we get a lot of emails about this as well, trying to emulate once again the Third World Liberation Front and calling for ethnic studies. Um, you know, there's obviously this big fight in California going on right now. You know, to me, but just individually, as somebody who didn't go through that whole process, went to college in Maine and mostly grew up in like North Carolina, um, and a lot of this was foreign to me until I studied it. It does, you know, it feels it feels a little bit small to me in terms of if I was trying to explain this to somebody, you know, who didn't know anything about it, they would say like, "What's, you know?" I, I think one of the responses would be like, "Well, what's the big deal? You know, it's one person's tenure. Like, isn't there aren't there other things to worry about? Like, how, how did you resolve that?" I don't think I ever resolved it. I think the the tensions between 
campus and community and what they symbolize are are still with me. And I, th- I think that's why I still feel guilty sometimes, you know, like, uh, what am I doing as a professor? What am I doing as a writer? And these tensions, I think, are um, wrapped up with the very problems they're designed to address. You know, we're, we're, we're enmeshed in contradictions. Uh, we're enmeshed in capitalism. Um, we're enmeshed in binaries also between authenticity and inauthenticity as well in terms of what we do. And as a writer, you know, which is now my primary identification more so than as a professor or as, uh, or as a scholar, I have to put that aside because I think that, you know, it, it doesn't help in the long run to be burdened by guilt in that respect. We have to also recognize the legitimate legitimacy of the work that we do in whatever avenue we end up in. So as a writer, I think I've, I have to believe that writing itself is a form of political activity that matters, even if obviously organizing workers and so on is, is an important form of political activity too. And the challenge is how do you, how do you coordinate? How do you do these things together? How do you acknowledge these kinds of things? How do you both grant the legitimacy to identity politics and to academic accessibility and diversity and the need for ethnic studies with also a relentless focus on economic struggle and justice and, and all these things as well. I mean, that, that's a theoretical and a practical problem that hasn't gone away. Do you think that's possible, like to do both? Because I, one of the things that I've, I've come across in the past 10 years or so where I've really started paying attention to this stuff is that I find it, you know, this, I find it difficult to do both, right? Like I, I find it difficult to focus on an economic explanation. And, you know, from reading some of the interviews that you've done recently, including one with Pankaj Mishra or, um, you know, the piece that you wrote in Time, uh, which we'll link to in our show notes, you know, like I, I'm always surprised when I come across somebody who is involved in the academy um, in, you know, who, who would, I would say is like an Asian American, you know, like with, with in capital A, where they, uh, where they do identify as part of the left, where they do talk about economic issues. And I, I think maybe that might be a block in my head, but I find that like when the questions are about identity, that for me, like it, like, it, it always ends up enveloping the other part of it. And so I've appreciated, you know, the stuff that you've been saying recently. Um, and perhaps you were just saying it before that, and that, you know, like now that you've you know, come to much more prominence that I'm more aware of it, but like, is it possible? Because I just can't think of that many models of people who do both. Well, I think there's no doubt this trajectory in this, the, con- the history of self-conscious Asian Americans, as if from, so from the 1960s onwards, has been this trajectory where its origins were radical um, and deeply you know, economic as well as as racial and, and so on, to the present moment where Asian American the, the Asian American name has become so broad and nebulous that anybody can be an Asian American. You know that includes neoconservative anti-affirmative action Asian Americans. Yeah but also more broadly, what would probably be the mainstream of uh, Asian America, which uh, I think you've been very critical of, which is something that's very, you know, you know, compatible with everything from liberalism to neoliberalism and is hardly radical in any way and, and is, is oftentimes oriented around issues of networking and access and, and um, upward mobility and you know, bourgeois politics and all these kinds of things. And so the section of Asian Americans now who would be interested in not just those kinds of liberal politics, but also something more radical in terms of like reimagining American society in very fundamental ways, I think is, is a relatively minor population. 
but that minor population is, you know, the, the one who tends to, to be in Asian American studies, tends to be the ones doing the scholarly theoretical work. That's not the same as the ones who are the neoliberal class writing, you know, essays for the New York Times, <laughs> like I do, right? So yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a real challenge, you know, how to translate this genealogy of radical political struggle and supposedly radical intellectual thought. I don't know how radical it is, but at least a- Asian American academics want to think is radical you know, intellectual thought, translating that into a public discourse that could be as persuasive or as seductive as, you know, you know, getting, getting, getting very excited about crazy rich Asians, which is certainly a lot easier now to get people mobilized around than to get them talking about Asian American commitments to radical equality. That has changed a little bit now as everything has changed because of, you know, Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd and so on. But who knows what the long-term consequences of that are going to be. That's it. In, in this interview with, with Pankash Mishra, you wrote, uh, you're, uh, you, you said something that I found to be interesting. I want to read it back to you and have you respond to it, which was, I've spent nearly three decades in academia and there is barely a radical left there, despite what Trump and conservatives claim. But academia, at least in the humanities and social sciences, does tilt liberal and the mainstream liberal intelligentsia and academia is defined by the smugness of the Ivy League. So I think you're right there. Like, um, what do you mean by that? Like, what what do you mean? Like, because it sounds like when you're in the academy in the 1990s at Berkeley as part of AAPA, you did see sort of the echoes of a radical agenda or or radical Asian American. Like, what's changed in the last 30 years? Um, well, I, I think what's changed is that in 1990, ethnic studies was was uh, very nervous about itself still. You know, its practitioners had come out of the 1960s. They were trying to create ethnic studies as an institution. And the tension, obviously, was how do we t- retain the radical roots of ethnic studies and yet to survive in academia? And 30 years later, ethnic studies, uh, I wouldn't say it's triumphant, but, you know, it, it has significant bases within academia. And part of the way that it's done that is through going the typical academic way of, of promoting people, getting people tenure, getting people full professordom, uh, putting books out that are respectable, that are well-cited, which means adhering in many ways to the conventions of academia. So that's the tension, right? Like, you now have a lot of, a lot of successful ethnic studies academics out there who are writing very, you know, intriguing, provocative books. But most of the most of the ways that they do that are by behaving like conventional academics. So that that is, uh, you know, an undeniable, inescapable tension you know, to be an academic. It's very hard to remove yourself from that, even if we do have, uh, you know, some very significantly and I think genuinely radical academics out there. Uh, so, again, that that dilemma, again, of, of campus institutionalization, what it does to, to our intellectual thought, that's, that's, that's been there since the 60s, and we're still struggling with that. Well, is there spillover? Is there a bleed over to the students from that type of, you know, I, I, domestication is, you know, maybe, it's not the phrase I would use, but let's just use it for now, because I can't think of anything better, which is like, I, I, my, my critique in a lot of this is the sense that I believe that a lot of what the kids read now in terms of ethnic studies probably is radical, right? Like if you read it, that a lot of it would be termed Marxist or a lot of it would be termed revolutionary even, but that the way that they process it because they are going to elite institutions or very expensive institutions is that they use it to 
Uh, and they use this type of language they learn in ethnic studies and they only learn it, use it to like get a better job, for example, right? Like they use it in moments like this. And this is something that is, you know, I, I feel very conflicted about because I'm in this industry and I, I did struggle for many years. It was very hard for me to break in. I think part of it was probably because of my race, but that every time there's like a huge uprising that the people in the media start you know, talking about about it within their own struggle, you know, at, at the New Yorker or something like that. Right. And that to me feels extremely, you know, I don't even know if the word is bourgeois because it's somehow beyond that. But that the language they use is radical language. But the asset they're having is essentially that let's have the New Yorker have three more jobs for people who look like me. Right. Like I, that, I, in my sense, and this is what I wanted to ask you about, because you have a lot of experience with it, is that I wonder if that is because within the academy, when they're learning these things, that they also understand that for the professors and for the people who are teaching it to them, that, you know, in some ways, there is also that divorce or that tension or contradiction within the professors themselves. And so everything does feel like, you know, like a, almost like a, there's a separation between the language and the ideas and the actual practice of it at every level well you I mean universities are cultures you know they 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 are about studying certain things and being professionalized and all that kind of thing but they're they're cultural you know you go to a university partly to learn stuff but also everybody understands that you you go there to be culturally formed as well um i don't you know i think students enter with the expectation that their degree is going to be a ticket to upward mobility or at least just to maintain where they where they happen to be at a at a class level. So even if what they're studying might be radical, the ideas that are being espoused, culturally, as you say, they, they, they're being taught by bourgeois pro professors who are bourgeois by status alone with income and all that kind of thing, at least the, the, the subset, the small subset yeah. that are still tenure track. And again, the academics who have the most intellectual purchase, the ones who are producing the ideas that get circulated, they're the ones with tenure, okay, or the ones who are going to get tenure. So the inequalities of American society that are expressed within the university in terms of having tenure track and non-tenure track people uh, expresses a contradiction that the students can clearly recognize. And if I look at my cohort at Berkeley, all these people who did Asian American studies, as far as I know, as far as I can tell, uh, everybody became reproduced into or produced into a bourgeois class. You know, they became politicians. They became uh, lawyers, they became doctors, and so on. Uh, very few people became and then stayed activists outside of this network that you're talking about. Most typically, the people who, who stayed the most politically committed did so, uh, in my, in, for my own cohort, by becoming elected politicians or working with ACLU and so on, still very institutionalized. Yeah. kinds of places. And I, when I look at my own students who have graduated at USC, most of them have done exactly the same thing. I can only think of one student I graduated who became a labor organizer. And for my own cohort, one person I can think of became a labor organizer. And then after some decades, gave it up because it was so hard to, to make a living that way. So that, again, is a real challenge. And, and I think to address your point specifically about, you know, what happens if you became a, a member of the so-called intellectual class, can you do more than just reproduce the intellectual class? That tension I, I struggle with too. You know, I'm a writer, I write fiction. And of course, you know, in the United States, we have a lot of fic good fiction by writers of color of all, of all backgrounds that gets lauded and so on. Is it actually radical? Well, for the most part, no. I mean, it, for the most part, it affirms a sort of a neoliberal yeah. approach to race and representation. So yes, you're bringing up some terrible deed that was done to your people, 
but you're not really challenging the literary establishment as a part of the American power system. And so I always wonder, am I doing that? I mean, is my work as as sufficiently radical, or am I am I, am I also being, or am I, am I just like all these other writers that I'm I'm I'm, I'm very critical of? It's, it's that is a constant source of anxiety. Well, do you do you think I, do you think that it constitutes a failure then of of ethnic studies? And now that we're like like fifty years in, 40, 50 years in, I guess where um, it where if what happens for the vast majority of people who go through this system which is supposed to be radical which is supposed which and for which let's talk specifically about asian americans for asian americans i think it is the eye-opening experience for so many of the people who go through this right they take their first asian american studies class they learn about maybe they didn't know about korematsu before maybe they didn't know about uh maybe they didn't know about vincent chin if you know if they're younger um and they they learn about the chinese exclusion act and then their eyes are open they're finally around asian people for the first time if they go to cal or ucla or something like that right this radicalizing experience like I think that at that point, you know, when they're 18, 19 years old, they're, they're willing to do anything. Like the whole world is open to them. And yet it does seem like they almost all of them get tracked into that. Now, do you see that? Like, is that just inevitable? Cause we're talking about students who are, you know, going to Cal or UCLA, USC, or is there, or, or does it constitute some sort of failure on the part of ethnic studies? I wouldn't lay the blame entirely on ethnic studies. I, I, I look at this and I think um, I, I think of politics as being cyclical, you know, like the any any country that we're looking at goes through moments of stability, stabilization, domestication and, and unrest. And if in 1990, the political confluence of events meant that the protests around the Gulf War and the diversity protests on campus had somehow were able to be conjoined, and then millions of people took to the streets, then the work of ethnic studies would have been realized, you know, the ideas and the thinking and so on. Now, you look at Black Lives Matter and the eruptions across the country, and the work is being led by activists, by young people, by people of all kinds. But I think that we can't dismiss what ethnic studies has done in this context and black studies that it's helped to lay the groundwork for that by circulating these ideas by putting them out there by training educating students so that they'd be they'd be ready when the moment took place so the the the, the catalyst of seeing george floyd murdered ignited everything that had been simmering for decades in this country. It's not ethnic studies fault, I think, that it itself wasn't able to be the ignition for that, for that moment. Yeah. Know, I think ethnic yeah. studies task is to prepare people theoretically to think about moments like this, to historicize it, et cetera, so that if they happen to be around when the historical moment happens, they can go take to the streets too. I mean, that's my optimistic way of thinking well, about I, it. I, no, I don't disagree with you. I actually agree with you about that, which is just that not everyone can become an activist for the rest of their life, right? And that um, at some point, you just need to have the idea in your head that, you know, this is the time to go out. And, you know, if you, if you at the age of 19, were a revolutionary Marxist, you know, then, then that's what you believe, then you can be sparked right back into that, even if you're like a 40-year-old 
you know, magazine writer or something like that, right? Like that, that, that is sort of the idea, but um, I, that, the, the specific ideas that are placed in their heads though, right? Like the ideas that are the groundwork, like, do you, do you think that the way that ethnic studies is teaching students right now, do you think that it does prep them for this type of, this type of moment or, or is some of it stuck in the past? And I am asking like, not as a leading way, I'm, I'm just actually act, asking out of ignorance because I have not taken ethnic studies class in 20 years. I think it's a fair question to ask. I think I'm the wrong person to ask. I think you should be asking 20 year olds who are <laughs> taking the classes. And, uh, it's my it's the same relationship I have to like younger Asian Americans or Vietnamese Americans or uh, or writers. You know, I don't I try not to sit there and say, well, this is what you should think. This is how we did it. This is a theoretical model or aesthetic model you should use. I say, well, this is what I've been trained in. This is what I want to do as a writer or as a thinker and so on. You guys do whatever you need to do and, and, and take us by surprise, which is exactly what happened in this Black Lives Matter moment, right? I mean, the Black Lives Matter movement is not being led by ethnic studies professors, although they serve their role in amplifying some of these ideas, um, well, as I did, for example, by writing for Time magazine. I wasn't out getting arrested, getting tear gassed and everything because I'm like almost 50 years old. Um, if I didn't have a kid, I would be, if I didn't have kids, I would be out there doing it. But yeah. no, that's just a bourgeois excuse. I have kids. I, I can't go out and get tear gas. Um, so I, I think that uh, whether or not ethics studies is effective for a younger generation, I can only assume that some element of it is because younger people are going around doing things like quoting Tony Morrison and James Baldwin, which is transmitted partly through Black studies and through ethnic studies as well. And if you're talking about specifically about Asian Americans, they do, this younger generation of Asian Americans does engage in a, a political rhetoric that I think is completely beholden to ethnic studies and to, you know, the, solidar the politics of activist solidarity as well, which are inseparable from the history of ethnic studies and third world struggle in this country. So like uh, if, if we take the rosiest view of, the, of 1969, 1971 possible, right? And we look back at third world liberation front, you know, there's, there's the bad version. There's the, the, the cynical version is, you know, I think a book was written about this actually, which was like, oh, these are just all rich kids, like rich second and third generation kids. The rosy version of it is like, you know, there are these kids from San Francisco state. There are these kids from Berkeley, but they're also like, you know, kids whose parents worked in in the fields in the central valley they're all reading the you know gidra which was a big publication at the time that there was some sort of cross-class solidarity within there and that that there were actions that were done that proved that you know the work was supposed to be in the community it is supposed to be to help like people who were not as fortunate enough to go to cal or something like that right like that's the rosy version of it i think that is a version that that i would like to believe and i think a lot of people would like to believe like, let's assume that that's true. Like, how do we get, and this is something I think about all the time, which is just like, how do you get young Asian people to do that instead of the other version, which is to take, you know, which we discussed, which is to take these ideas and to apply them in sort of a neoliberal way to help them in their own career so that they can like advance further in, in a capitalist system. Like, how do you think we get them to like, you know, go into the international hotel, for example, and, you know, spend six years fighting for, you know, pretty indigent, uh, you know, old Filipino men who are living there. Well, I think this is where there is a failure of, of ethnic studies. And it's it's partly, you know, a failure of us as teachers, but also of the uh, institutions we find ourselves in, you know, which 
is that back in the day, you know, part of the education, part of the original mission of ethnic studies was to bring students out of the campus and get them involved in activist politics outside, right? To give them internships, to get them working with local organizations and so on. And that emphasis, I think, has dropped out of most ethnic studies. Why do you think that programs. is? Well, well I, think, I think because, honestly, I think because ethnic studies has been relatively successful within the academy by producing academics, by producing people who are, you know, people who are very sympathetic to community activism and organizations and so on, but their energies are so consumed by surviving in academia, which is a really labor-intensive existence, they don't have that much time or energy left to become also full-time activists or even part-time activists and uh, have the knowledge necessary to train their students or to lead their students out, outside of the campus. And I'm guilty of that too. I mean, I'm, I'm involved outside of, of the campus in organizations, but my organizations are arts organizations. They're not labor organizations, for example. They're not anarchists organizations. So even the kinds of organizations that some academics get involved with outside of the campus tend to be not as radical as they might be. I remember, again, back in the day, my moment, you know, when we were all getting arrested and so on for, for our activism on, on campus, there was a tension that back there, back then, even between the students, you know, who were ethnic studies majors and committed to these kinds of causes and the non-campus activists, you know, the, 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 the people who we couldn't identify, who, whose, whose politics we didn't know, who could be anywhere from, you know, anarchist to Marxist to who, to who knows what. Um, so there was already sort of respectability that was that was in, that we were engaging with back then about you know what what who who we should be organizing with. So yeah, I, I think ethnic studies has in, in in has not been successful overall um, in encouraging this kind of non-campus activism and orientation among its students. Well, do you think there's something else to it? Because like I, you know, I'm struck by the fact kids don't always just do what their professors tell them to do, right? Like um, the kids in 1969 certainly were not being told by the professors to go and organize this thing. Um, but it does seem like kids are like, I don't know, why, why do you think the kids just aren't doing this by themselves? You know, like, why aren't they going out and, and trying to make economic-based arguments like or to you know to go out and do something where they'll go occupy the building that is going to be torn down like i i look for that sort of stuff all the time and if it's happening i apologize but you know i, I think if it was happening that i would at least know about it because maybe some of the people who listen to our podcast which is a lot of young you know like um the asian kids who identify on the left at least would have told us about it but like why do you think the kids right now aren't doing as much of that yeah i I, i'm i'm happy for you to be corrected for me to be corrected and you know i mean i'm totally willing to admit you know i don't know what's going on and maybe there are you know a lot of radical activists young activists out there doing different kinds of organizing work with non-bourgeois kinds of organizations um but i think that one answer to your question would be that ethnic studies has been successful in very elite and very expensive um, institutions like my own, you know, university, University of Southern California. I mean, it costs sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year to go here. That's not unusual. So you're, you know, you're already uh, looking at institutions that, uh, simply by their cost, are going to discourage certain habits of thinking. And then if you look at institutions that are not as expensive, you know, state institutions, let's say, um, they're still expensive for the 
the the students who go there, right? And so the the entire force of of, of American society in the last 30, 40 years has been to privatize, has been to make education too expensive, has been to orient student people towards the necessity of survival in the kind of uh, economy that we have. So there's it's not a surprise that people are, you know, who are burdened by debt of various kinds are not super interested in, you know, not being able to pay off that debt by becoming labor organizers and activists and the like. Um, I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to ask you something, which is that I think that, it, and please tell me if I'm reading this wrong, but, you know, from the piece that you wrote in Time, and I know that you are not alone in feeling this way, that you believe that there is a way for us to take sort of the core of ethnic studies and the core of Asian American, even though the term since 1969, 1971 has expanded so much and changed, right? That we can take that identity and that we can apply it to leftist politics and that that's the path forward. Like my sense is that we probably can't do that, right? Like that we have to have some sort of radical redefinition of Asian American and perhaps it might mean doing away with the term altogether. Um, like, am I mischaracterizing your argument? Like, like, what do you think about that? Because for me, it just feels like the second we make it about Asian Americans and it becomes about crazy rich Asians and like rooting for like, you know, vaguely Asian athletes in the Olympics or something like that, which, you know, I, I've, I, I do myself. I actually haven't seen crazy rich Asians, but I'm sure I would enjoy it if I did. Um, but like, I, I think that there is this like, you know, I, I think that the diversion that happens the second that you enter the Asian American identity space away from leftist politics is so severe that we can't quite meet the two together. I don't, I don't disagree. You know, I think I, I uh, feel the obligation to keep saying Asian American and to say things like I'm an Asian American writer. I don't have any, I don't have any problems with that because I think that that Asian American as a term and as an identity and as a basis for movement still has very significant validity in a lot of ways. But I think of it as a tactic. And I think what you're saying is that if you adopt a tactic, it can become a strategy. You know, like even if you say, oh, we understand that Asian American is provisional, but simply by adopting that term, there's, a, there's an easy slippage into the, the most naive kinds of identity politics or the, the kind of politics are the most acceptable to neoliberalism and commodification and so on in the politics of consumption and representation. Yeah. And I think that's, that's very, very true. Um, it's so, it's, it's how do we negotiate between saying, okay, tactically, we need to acknowledge that Harvard needs Asian American studies. Like, I think to, to, like Thursday, I'm going to be on, on a Harvard ethnic studies panel saying that right? <laughs> because they do. They do need yeah. Asian American studies and ethnic studies. How do you go from that and not then simply be happy when Harvard gives you Asian American studies and you get a tenured professor of Asian American studies and nothing changes at Harvard? It remains the same smug institution it's always been, reproducing bankers or whatever. Uh, that's that's a real challenge. The, the alternative that you gesture at, you know, which is a left that is somehow a radical left that that can move beyond these kinds of uh, politics of racial formation, that's also very tricky, obviously, because it, that space is also also tends to be inhabited by people who dismiss the importance of of race and who go around saying, you know, we need to return to pure Marxist class based order. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm with you. I mean, it's a it, it's. It's a question of do you want people to listen to you or not at, at some fundamental level, right? Where if you go to a bunch of 20-year-old Asian kids and you say at, you know, let's say at USC where you teach and you say, let's just drop this whole thing. You know, all this stuff that you guys care about, like Hollywood representation, it's stupid. You know, <laughs> like you'll lose the entire crowd. It's something that I struggle with a lot because it's, uh, I, I believe these things, you know, I think that Hollywood representation was a very bad thing for Asian Americans to be preoccupied with for so long especially since it took 
up so much space. When I start explaining this to people who are not just my friends with the exact same politics at me, I can just see this glaze, you know, come over the person's face. And I feel like this old man screaming at them, you know, about like, I feel like like uh, the guy who, who like hands out news, socialist newspapers or something like that, you know, to like to like sorority kids who are walking by. And I, I've had a hard time navigating it as well, but I just don't, you know, it's hard for me to find the alternative just because, um, you know, I, I do think that maybe young people are starting to think about it a little bit more, but I, I also just don't know what the identity is, you know, like uh, if it's not that, right? Like, Well, you know, I, I, I've been on the lecture circuit for about four or five years now. And, uh, you know, I started off giving that, that narrative about, you know, the necessity for having a voice and for speaking up about being Vietnamese American and Asian American and so on. And then that gradually evolved, not to dismiss that, but to say, okay, well, we have that, we need that, obviously. Uh, but ultimately, what we also need is decolonization. Okay, so whatever, I, I just had, I needed a term beyond representation, because everybody agrees, representation matters, everybody gets excited about having Constance Wu on screen or whatever. Um, but beyond that, you know, we need decolonization. And then, then I break it down to what, all, what, what de decolonization would entail. And I try to say that no matter where I go, whether it happens to be West Point or, you know, the Association of College and Research Libraries or academic, you know, uh, places, you know, in, in universities. And I think that's that's crucial. You have to tell a story. And I think the, the, the stories are absolutely necessary for liberation and for political organizing. I really do believe that. And Asian Americans have been dominated by a story about representation and inclusion. And those are very seductive words and they totally make sense. You know, liberals do not get offended about representation and inclusion. And it's hard enough to struggle for that with liberals, you know, who, yeah, yeah. who, who, who won't, won't, you know, do things like diversify their industries. Um, so that's on us. I mean, if we have anything we can do as journalists and as writers and as teachers, it's to tell the, tell the story. And so that I think remains a challenge that enough of us need to articulate what that more radical story is beyond the inclusion of Asian Americans and equality for Asian Americans. Um, and I think for me, I keep going back to this idea that we're enmeshed in a very long contradiction. It's not like what we're dealing with is new. No, you know, I'm, I'm, for example, I'm teaching Franz Fanon again in a few weeks, uh, black skin, black, uh, black skin, white masks, and the wretched of the earth, everything he was saying in the 50s and 60s about black people and black revolution and black identity is still true today and for Asian Americans. And he says, basically, you know, you can, you, you, you have to be black, but to be black is also to be, to be trapped at the same time in this sort of racist, capitalist, colonialist contradiction where blackness is both your, your prison and your site of liberation at the same time. I, I don't see any difference really between that position and what we have to argue about for Asian Americans. Asian Americans, you need Asian, you need the name of the Asian American for a movement for liberation. But what's the object of that movement for of liberation? To be liberated from being an Asian American. It's a contradiction, you know, and that's the thinking that we need to engage in. In 1990, did you, I know that this has changed that is, did you feel as like a, you know, as, as somebody who's Vietnamese, did you feel like you were, you know, not quite part of the Asian American 
identity in the same way that maybe like, you know, like I guess Filipinos have always felt that way. You know, Pacific Islanders, I think the AAPI thing, like I don't even get it because I think that the only point of having AAPI is so that the PI can be excluded and then get mad at the <laughs> AA. <laughs> you know, like I've never heard another conversation, you know, outside of that. Um, like I, I know that I know that right now it's, you know, like I don't think that anyone blink and say that, you know, Vietnamese are and Korean and, you know, uh, was it different in 1990? No, I think it was the same. I, I, I think what these, uh, the, the struggle over terminology, like are we Asian Americans? Are we Asian Pacific Americans? Are we Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders? Are South Asians a part of that? All, all that kind of stuff. That is taking place at the level of the rhetoric of diversity and inclusion and representation. And that's wrong because what these, the struggle over terminology represents really is a struggle over our historical understanding of the place of these populations in this country in their location to the contradiction I just talked about. Because I did feel out of place, not just because in, in Asian America, not simply because I was Vietnamese and there weren't enough of us, but because of theoretical models that were being advanced for the Asian American movement were based upon the experiences of Japanese and Chinese immigrants, yeah. basically. Yeah. You know, and you know, what was really fashionable in the 1990s and still today is this idea that Asian Americans came here as immigrants, they were they were exploited, they were oppressed, and they resisted and they built a culture of resistance. That's the most dominant narrative within Asian American studies. And I came out of a Vietnamese refugee background where I looked around, and I was like, these are not radical people. A lot of these people were fleeing from communism. They're very conservative. They're not <laughs> in any way going to be hospitable to Marxist critique. And that is completely true today. Like, you know, some of the most ardent Trump supporters are Vietnamese Americans. How do you articulate that? And the Asian American model that I described cannot articulate it. The Asian American model that I described can only look at Vietnamese American uh, uh, radical conservatives and say that they're not Asian American that they're they're somehow they're, they're stricken by false consciousness or something like that yeah no that this is very you know this is something that i go on and on and on about as well just because you know like the people i know who are korean are mostly very socially conservative and i don't think that they would vote for trump but some of them have you know and the ones who who have really like him um but that the idea that they are that they're like involved in some sort of anti-racist struggle is ridiculous and it's, right. it, it's laughable and that but that it seems like so, sh I don't know, like, I don't know how to, how to, I, I've never been able to figure out how to reconcile this except to point out the contradictions of it, right? Like, I could just be like, well, we're not all X, right? And actually, in fact, what we do is we get together and a bunch of people who are Korean, Vietnamese, uh, J Chinese, some Japanese, I guess, still, you know, point out that the other people are like retrograde and that, you know, that, that we're ashamed of them. You know? um, and so it seems like, you know, that from that to say that we should have some sort of Pan-Asian-ness or that we should have a more of a Pan-Asian identity. I, I generally agree with that politically, but I just don't know how we get there when we can't even like figure out what our own people are like, not, not just Asian Americans, but, you know, like Koreans or, or Vietnamese inside. Well, I think, again, this goes back again to this, this, this really problematic way that Asian American studies wants to override these kinds of issues and argue that, you know, we can just have a pan-Asian American movement that where we just sort of, you know, ideologically purify people and people who are not ideologically pure or don't articulate the right position, we're just, we're just not going to talk about them or we're going to, you know, we're going to just have to re-educate them in, in some way. And I, I don't, <laughs> of course we need to, but 
I think you know the the the, the significance of anti-communist conservatism among a lot of Asian immigrant and refugee populations needs to be connected to who they are, how they came here, their relationship to America's wars in Asia, and all that kind of and, and you know. And they're, they're, you know, for a lot of them, the, the fact that they were, you know, complicit with colonialism or with occupation in the countries that they came from. Yeah. And so that's what I mean that when we look at these different populations, the, the, the rhetoric of just trying to include more people doesn't work. Pacific Islanders, for example, it, it's not going to work for us simply to say API, everybody's included. No, if you include a, if you include Pacific Islanders, Islanders in API, you need to talk about why they're here. Colonization, appropriation, you know, uh, the fact that Asians are involved in the colonization of the Pacific Islands and, and the Americans are involved. If you go that route, you can't solve the problem with diversity and inclusion. You have to talk about colonization, its legacy. How do you decolonize the, the traces of colonization in our everyday lives? And so I think that's the way forward is, is to do something that's always been done, as far as I can tell, with leftist struggle, which is that you have different registers of political thinking that, you know, you need to organize a united front immediately to get something done tactically for whatever is urgent at the moment. But the longer term horizon is something else than diversity and inclusion or a united front. The longer term project is something more radical that addresses the fundamental crisis of capitalism and colonization and racism and patriarchy. I mean, do you think that there, like, I do you think there is a pathway towards a pan-Asian identity? Because I, I think about it quite a bit in terms of even, you know, like half Asian kids, which are a ton of now, you know, um, and how are they like, are they just lost causes in, in some sense, right? Like, cause th I think that the way in which we treat half Asian kids or half a kids is essentially like, well, if you want to like, you know, come to, with us to Bova, it's fine. Right. But then <laughs> we don't really take their Asian-ness seriously. And I, I, I think about it in the future where it's like, all right, this identity is going to have to work. And I believe it's going to have to work in some sort of way because we don't have really much else. Right. And that at some point we're going to have to protect each other. We're going to have to like feel some sort of affinity for ourselves within like a, a racist country. Um, that how do you, how do you get to pan Asianness? Because, it, you know, in my mind, it's like, well, I don't know if we're going to get there, but we have to try. <laughs> but you seem to feel like it's even, even harder than I do. You know, like I, I, there is part of me that just thinks, you know, what? let's just, let's just lie to each other, you know, and, and, and get, and get along. Um, like how, how do you think we get there? Or do you even think we should get there? Well, I, I, I think that for me, the answer is that you know, we have to think dialectically, which is again, oh, I mean, people want simple answers, right? They, they want pan-Asian identity, they want Asian American movement, they as a site of authenticity. And we all fall into it, like, okay, you know, you're not really Asian American because you eat crappy Asian food, you don't eat the real Asian yeah. food or whatever. And uh, so it's a joke, but it has, there is there is some, you know a real impetus towards this. Who who are we? authentically and who isn't one of us right and you know non-asian americans white people are clearly you know help us to define who we are but then hapa kids mixed race asian american kids uh, pose a different kind of a problem and this is why in my novel the sympathizer i de deliberately chose to make the protagonist mixed race half mm -hmm. french half vietnamese yeah. half white half asian because i did not want to write a book that would allow vietnamese people to say hey it's it's a book that represents us when us <laughs> we are racist you know, we've been colonized by the racist French, but we ourselves are racist towards our mixed race brethren. And this is wrapped up in the larger problem of colonization, right? That should be the problem, not the validation of Vietnamese experience and identity and history. 
So likewise with Hapa Asian American kids, the ones who choose to identify as Asian American, that's their choice, uh, or to acknowledge the Asian American aspect of their mixed race heritages, they're crucial because they throw into crisis the very meaning of Asian American. And that's a good thing. Asian Americans, like everybody else, don't want to be in crisis. They want authenticity, they want comfort, et cetera, et cetera. But in reality, we should be in crisis, we should be uncomfortable, we should be welcoming these kinds of signs of the problem of our own categorization. That's what I call dialectical thinking, because then we have to think about why are we in crisis? How do we resolve the crisis? It's not by just drinking more boba or incorporating more Asians or whatever. It has to be using those kinds of issues as a launching point for something else. That's dialectical thinking. And again, you're right. Not enough Asian Americans want to do that. It's difficult to do. It's taken me many, many years to try to wrap my head around it. So, And I, I, I get paid to do this kind of intellectual work. How do we expect people who don't get paid to do intellectual work to think through these issues? Well, they think through them, a lot of them, by getting involved in political struggle, right? Whether it's you know the political struggle of diversifying their workplace or now the political struggle of being on the streets for Black Lives Matter. Um, so again, none of this is new. Uh, but I think more of us who are the Asian, who are doing the thinking work uh, in in the Asian American context, need to be stressing these kinds of issues: crisis, contradiction, dialectical thinking, being uncomfortable, not settling for authenticity, not feeling like what we what we what, that if, if we had a pan Asian movement, that somehow everything would be better. It won't. Yeah, hey, this is my last question because I know you have to go. But like, uh, and this is. Uh... It's a, it's it's going off something you just said, and it's it's another thing that's been on my mind that I'm curious about your opinion on, which is that I think that right now, in terms of this current moment, right, the protests that are going around around the country, and the sort of reignition of what happened in 2014 in Ferguson into something much bigger that you know involves a lot more people, that I worry because I feel like the way in which Asian Americans, for the most part, are going through this are almost as allies, right? Like they say, they, they say like yellow peril stands with black power or they sit, they do things like, and this is something we talk about on our podcast quite a bit. They write letters to their parents. They, they always do this incantation of like, Oh, well we must address, you know, anti-blackness in our community. And that for me, like, well, the, the, the fear that I have is essentially that I feel like some of what is happening is that essentially these kids or these young people are trying to act position themselves in a way where they don't actually have to see their own struggle wrapped up in what's going on in the streets. And so they're trying to almost become white liberals, right? Like they want to occupy this position of white liberalism where they don't have to actually feel invested in it. And to do that, they have to do a few little tricks, you know, like, you know, rhetorical tricks. And the problem that I have with this is that I think that it ends up being very shallow, right? Like it's, it's almost like a show of deference. And that as long as they can show enough deference, as long as they can acknowledge, well, my, you know, my uncle is racist, but I'm not, that they can occupy this new space where in which anti-racism is such a, you know, like, let's just be honest, if you want to be like a professor, if you want, if I want to be a, if I want to be like accepted at parties or, or get more jobs as a, as a journalist writing for places like New York or New York Times, like, it's better for me to act like a white liberal than it is for me to act like, you know, my racist uncle, right? And so the fear that I have is that at the point where it is, it is so deferential and where it feels assimilationist that it actually isn't coalitional, there's no coalitional foundation to it. Like there's no movement that we can, you know, any formation that you want to say, whether it's just Korean Americans, whether it's all Pan-Asian, that whatever is going to be formed out of all this is going to dissipate the second that, you know, 
the protests stop and that people have to stop doing that. that that's my general fear of this moment right now, that we're not actually building something that tries to stand next to or stand behind or, or however you want to position it. We're trying to create our own politics and then stand next to other people who also feel, you know, have the same struggle in the same way that Third World Liberation Front tried to do. Well, I think you put it very well. And I think you're right that in, that Asian Americans in this moment of Black Lives Matter have uh, assumed a more modest position. And I think they should, actually. I think they should. I think that that is actually the right reading of the situation, that the gravity of, uh, of racism in American society um, is, is much worse for Black Americans and for Native and Indigenous peoples than it is for, uh, for Asian Americans, even though we are also victims of racism in, in different kinds of ways, and sometimes it can be very violent. Um, but you're right that I think that taking such a position of deferral and simply acknowledging that anti-Black racism is more critical at this moment than anti-Asian racism is a way out, a liberal way out, of thinking about the difficulty of what it means to be Asian American today in relationship to all the various kinds of problems, but including anti-Black racism. And that's why I brought up earlier, you know, that it's crucial for Asian Americans to think about why they're here in this country. And it's not just an immigrant narrative. If you choose the immigrant narrative, right, then you have to uh, give priority to anti-Black racism because as, as immigrants to this, to this country, Asian Americans do occupy a structural position generally, that is more advantageous than Black people in this country simply by, 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 by the privilege of immigrating into this country. Yeah. But if you think of Asian Americans as being here as the result of warfare and colonization and global domination by the United States in Asia and the Pacific, then you have a completely different read that Asian Americans' existence here is also testimony to the military industrial complex, American imperialism, in which anti-Black racism and anti-Asian Asian, Asian racism plays a role. But when you go in that direction, it's very, it can be frightening for a lot of Asian Americans, especially the second generation, because it throws into question their place in this country and their place in relationship to their families and communities. But the because, other problem is that it, it, uh, it also f- it seems to uh, be in direct contradiction with the consensus, right? And that I think that is actually maybe more of an impediment where, you know, you're being told when you read like the, the, the most sort of, you know, vaunted things that everybody is reading, you're being told, well, you know, Asian Americans are only here because Hart Seller passed because like, you know, uh, the civil rights movement happened. And so, you know, like, like that, that, that's like sort of almost a command for deference, right? Or they're being told that like Asian Americans are white adjacent. And look, I'm not saying that any of this isn't true in a lot of ways, right? And I'm certainly not saying that the, that the weight of racism on Asian Americans is the same as it is on African Americans or, or on black people. I, I never used to term African Americans. I don't know why I did. But, uh, you know, on, on black people here in America, like I, I, I do think that there is this thing where if you start to talk about colonialism, you start to talk about war, you start to talk about... Um, about that sort of violence and trying to find yourself there that you that it's that it's almost going against you know the idea that what what you're being told otherwise from this sort of like you know like woke consensus that that actually what you should do is that you should position yourself as being white adjacent does that make sense yeah and i think one of the the things that 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 does is to affirm the american context 
you know, if everything is articulated through the domestic experience of anti-Black racism and the civil rights movement, then you've already taken for granted the American framework that, uh, you know, foregrounding American experience is primary above all else. And the immigrant narrative totally feeds into that. So what I'm saying is that our opportunity as radical Asian Americans is to dislodge that narrative, okay? Our, our situation domestically is as the model minority, that's structurally what we do. But if we think about ourselves internationally, our situation is different. You know, the flip side of the model minority, as we all know, is the perpetual foreigner stereotype. Well, there's a reason that that stereotype exists. And again, it exists because of the United States relationship to Asia. And when I said that it's difficult, it would be difficult for Asian Americans to think of themselves in this context, what I mean is that if you think of yourself in relationship to American imperialism versus the American dream, you get a different result. So therefore, it's not that critical to struggle for, you know, spots at Harvard University when to be a part of Harvard University means that you might be there to help develop napalm, to be dropped on another country. Or if you think about yourself in relationship to wars in Korea and Vietnam, for example, and you are a good liberal Asian American, you might have to think about what the, the role of your family has been in Korea and in Vietnam. So, for example, you know, in I, 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 I've talked about the role of Korean soldiers in the Vietnam War, for example, and I use the word mercenaries to describe these Korean soldiers. And a friend of mine who's a Korean American uh, and who's, you know, good liberal leftist, you know, Korean American whose father was one of these soldiers protested. He said, no, they're not. They're not mercenaries. He's my father. I totally understand where he's coming from. I totally understand. But structurally speaking, those Korean soldiers were mercenaries. They were bought and paid for by the United States. They had a function. They helped Korea become the Korea that it is now. None of these things can be separated. They're oh, yeah. And they were also like the first, they're the first Korean Americans to show up in LA. It was a lot of like shell shocked uh, people who couldn't function in Korea anymore. And they came over to the United States. This is my last question. And, you know, um, and I, it's because I did see that you mentioned it in the Pankaj Mishra, uh, you know, exchange that you did. But like this, this, this framing that you, that you and I think, you know, I think that Tammy, who does a podcast with us, would totally agree with you 100%, right? Um, does it, like, and I, I'm not just re-asking this question, but like, you know, like, does it, does it require us to, to reject some of the ways in which race is framed currently? So like, for example, like uh, 1619 Project would say that like, we can only really think of ourselves in the context of race in America through what happened to black Americans in terms of chattel, like chattel slavery and that, that there's almost no space for other people to think about their own oppression outside of that. Now, I think that the author of that would probably object to, to that characterization, but I do think that like, you know, like that when I feel that, and you know, this is, I, I work at the same magazine that she did. I'm saying this as, you know, like I, I'm saying this as a way to try and start a conversation, which is, you know, like I don't really think that, that there is an international aspect to that type of mentality. Um, does it mean that we have to stand against something like that? Like, does it mean that we have to like, you know, that, that we have to argue against it or, or is it something that we can just let sort of pass and not, and not, and, and because it would be a very difficult fight. And it would be a very difficult fight. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. You know, and uh, that, that partly has to relate to the fact that Asian Americans as a whole haven't done the work collectively to be able to articulate a position that exists alongside the 1619 project. Because 
for me, you know, when I think about the 1619 project, one of the, the great innovations that it that it does is to locate the history of, of slavery beyond the founding of the country, you know, beyond, you know, Declaration of Independence to what is essentially a colonizing moment. You know, African slaves are brought, brought here as a part of the colonizing moment. So all these histories are wrapped up together. And so if we think about our history through colonization versus through immigration for Asian Americans, then we have a better, actually we have a better relationship to the 1619 project. Because if we insist on immigration, like I said, you know, as immigrants, we become participants in anti-Black, anti-Indigenous uh, society. Whereas if we think of ourselves as a narrative, as a, through a narrative of colonization, uh, we are also immigrants participating in racism, but we are also victims of the same colonizing process that brought Black slaves to this country as well. So there's an opportunity there, you know, but again, it demands as you've been saying as well, that we get outside of thinking purely in these nationalistic terms about assimilation and liberalism uh, in which Asian Americans are right now very comfortable in thinking about themselves. Yeah, I, I just think it's too difficult. Uh, the contradiction is too difficult to be, to say that like the leading, you know, the leading sort of message of anti-racism here in the United States, you know, uh, actually wants us to act like white liberals in some sort of way. And it's actually more comfortable for us to act as white liberals because it means that we can advocate for ourselves and live comfortably and we don't have to do all this difficult stuff. So why don't we just act like white liberals? I think that's sort of what's happening. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to fix it because I disagree with it, obviously, you know, and I think that there is a way to build a stronger political identity and then use that political identity to, you know, stand in, not in deference, but alongside black issues in a way that feels very significant and will feel much more real. You know, it will be quote unquote doing the work, but it actually involves sort of negating part of that critique as well. And I, I actually don't know how we get there. Um, well, the way I think about it is that, you know, whiteness studies has actually been pretty critical because it involves, you know, white thinkers thinking against being white and foregrounding that. Now, we who are not white say, yes, of course you should do that. <laughs> but we as Asian Americans, and you know, not all Asian Americans are white adjacent, but a good number of them are. And the ones that you're talking about, the intellectual class are definitely, for the most part, white adjacent and participate in the privileges of whiteness, even if they're also occasionally victimized by anti-Asian racism. You know, these kinds of Asian Americans, the thinking class needs to increasingly think against what it means to be Asian American for the same reason that there is Asian American privilege that is adjacent to white privilege. Now, Asian American studies, if we go back to the ethnic studies narrative that we started with, has a problem with this or has had a problem with this. You know, the, the, the standpoint of Asian American studies to adopt the standpoint of the Asian American movement has been to say, we are victims of American racism. We are the victims of white people. We need to stand against American society consolidating this Asian American identity and movement. Well, that, that moment, I think, if, there, if there's one innovation that, that needs to happen is that Asian American studies needs to think against Asian Americans at this point. That would be a major shift from what happened in the 1960s and the 1990s. Yeah, no, I, I, and on that, we're totally aligned. You know, I, I was even thinking about using some of the Ignatiev like no Ignatiev, like race trader stuff and to say that we have to commit treason against Asian Americans. But, you know, it's again, I, I feel like the old man handing out like socialist uh, newspapers to fraternity brothers and screaming in their faces, you know, like, how dare you? Uh, whatever I think, things like that. Well, uh, 
I think our time's up, but thank you so much for uh, stopping by. And uh, yeah, this is totally fascinating, illuminating for me. I'm glad we got to talk this out. Thanks for having me, Jay. It was a great conversation.